and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. As always, joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, I think it's safe to say we've got a strange, strange season going on here. Uh, We had the postponement of another Cardinals series, uh, their series with the Pirates this week. So that's 10 teams that have lost games now for COVID-related reasons. Uh, Then you had the Marlins. They just made 40 roster moves in one week and, of course, still won their first four in a row. Uh, I'm just glad that we have a fantastic guest to help put all this in perspective. Uh, Jed Hoyer, the general manager of the Cubs, will join us to talk about his team, the strange state of a sport where one team has played five games and other teams have almost played 20 games and the arrival of the trading deadline in just three weeks. Um, but first, Doug, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this. Uh, we need to spend like 30 seconds talking about what has become somehow or other our most ongoing topic field of dreams. <laughs> Doug, you're looking forward to this. I am. I'm very excited. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, we're doing this because I'm saddened to announce that the Field of Dreams game, which was supposed to be played this Thursday in the shadow of an Iowa cornfield, is not going to happen. Uh, now, you'd think if they build it, somebody would come, but not this year. Okay, uh, So I'm sure you view the cancellation of this game as some sort of proof from above that your claim that Field of Dreams is overrated is now obviously 100% accurate. So go ahead. I'll give you your chance to say it. Go ahead. Well, it, it, it does lend itself to believe that I have divine support here. Uh, but I also <laughs> do think that it, it also is a sign of the apocalypse. So so that's, that is concerning because I, I recognize the uh, the power of this movie and you, you can't erase it. So I'm going to you know give it some love in saying that that's okay. That just because there's not a game, it does not mean it does not reside in our hearts and our souls as, as baseball fans and aficionados. So I will assume this will be reinstated at some point in the near future uh, when it's safe and when the corn will be happy and accepting of it. And um, <laughs> the, the day will come <laughs> and we will build it once again and they will come once again. And uh, this time maybe it will be what teams? White Sox and what well, was Cardinals. Well, it was, was going to be Cardinals. Yankees. It'll be White Sox and somebody. Yeah, I love it. So, uh, yeah, I feel good. Astros. White Sox Astros. Uh Right. Uh, Very magnanimous of you. Uh, This is not a sign of divine intervention. Uh, They will play this game next year. Uh, And once again, Doug, the constant through all the years is baseball. Never forget that. (laughs) Okay. I, I couldn't. I couldn't say that quite like James Earl Jones. No, no. I just <laughs> right. don't have the James Earl Jones gene in me. But we've given you your chance. 
to talk about Field of Dreams. To score one for you, I'll get my chance. I promise. You work on James Earl. Luke, I am your father. <laughs> that was pretty good, right? That was not bad. Uh, James Earl Jones did not play Darth Vader, so that does not apply. <laughs> I didn't play him, but provided the vocals, yes. All right. It's time to welcome in our special guest this week. It's the general manager of the first place Chicago Cubs, Jed Hoyer. Uh, Jed, I'm pretty sure they're the first general manager to visit us here in Starkville. So I think that tells you how honored we are to have you here, man. <laughs> Fantastic. Glad to be first. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's not just you who are first. Your team is in first. Um, but then some strange stuff happened, and I'd like for you to recap it for us. Um, you were in Kansas City. You played a game Thursday. You traveled to St. Louis. Then what happened? What did your team do from there? Yeah, so we got a call uh, pretty early on Friday morning um, that you know, it looked like the Cardinals were going to have um, at least one or two more positive COVID tests. And so, you know, once that happened at that point, it was pretty clear we weren't going to play on Friday night. Um, so, you know, we, we postponed that game. And then um, the team is sort of sitting around the hotel waiting. And um, sort of mid-afternoon or so, we found out that um, – that it was going to be that the whole series was going to be postponed. And uh, we flew back to uh, Chicago that night. And, you know, it's a really, um, it's a really tough one right now. You know, I think that we all, we all know that during this period, there's going to have to be a lot of flexibility. Uh, I think that part, um, that part's obvious. Um, but there's a, such a human aspect to it, you know, that um, you're used to these teams in your division being your rivals, but when something like this happens, it, it hits a different, a different note, you know, um, I think it's it, baseball is a small community and, and you, you know, a lot of these guys personally, even though they're on teams you, you fight against. And so uh, all of a sudden you turn from you know, thinking about the games to, you know, hoping the guys, you know, are okay and hoping that um, the Cardinals are, are, are all right. And um, it could be any team. So I, I think that the, the mentality is certainly a concern for them. And then obviously getting back to Chicago and sort of making sure that we don't lose our season's momentum, but that seems secondary during something like this. Yeah. They're just, uh, you know, just so many ripple effects every time this sort of thing happens and we'll, we'll get into them um, in this conversation, but let, let's start with the one you just raised uh, your team 10 and three. Uh, you'd won six in a row before that uh, loss in, on Thursday in Kansas city. Um, how disruptive are breaks like this? And what do they say about the obstacles that I think are likely to keep popping up in a season like this? Well, that's probably the, the part of this that I think I underestimated was that I guess I never kind of intellectualized the fact that one, you know, something like, you know, the Marlins testing positive would affect the Phillies and the Yankees and the Orioles and all these different teams. And, you know, obviously I think now the, you know, the Cardinals have impact, you know, situation has impacted the Tigers and the Brewers and the Cubs and the Pirates. And yeah. um, the ripple effects are real. And I don't think I realize that um, quite as much. Um, and as far as the, the momentum or the, the schedule goes, like I said, I think we just have to be in the mentality that these things are going to happen this year. It's not going to be smooth. Um, you're going to lose guys at different times. Um, and you just have to, you have to have that that sense that things aren't going to feel normal and you're not going to probably get into the same kind of routine. And 
you know, yesterday we had a, a sim game at the ballpark and, um, you know, they put up on the scoreboard, you know, welcome to the 2020 all-star break. And, you know, I thought it was a, a clever way just to remind everyone, Hey, this is a break. It happens every year. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not a big deal. We just have to get back to, to playing on Tuesday night. So, um, maybe take it as a positive Like our guys that we had played a bunch of games in a row. Um, guys get a little bit, a bit of a break. I'm sure some guys were sore or had some aches and pains and hopefully we can get rid of those and then, you know, get back to playing well. Yeah. And Jed, I mean, how do you even strategically, is it something that you sat and said, all right, let's prepare for these kind of scenarios where you might lose two games, three games. I mean, did you try to map that out in advance and, you know, come up with ways to sort of deal with it? No, uh, no. Like I said, I think that this is the part that I don't think we expected as much that we would have these kind of, you know, fits and starts to the season. Um, you know, at some point, uh, we're probably going to have a bunch of double headers, and that's something we do need to prepare for in advance because um, you're not used to that in, in today's game. You might play a couple a year, but you're not, you know, you're not in a situation where, you know, we might play a lot more than that. And um, I do think that's a, a mental grind. You know, it's hard to sweep double headers, and, and sometimes you, you need to do that. So um, I think that's going to be a, a real challenge and something that we have to prepare for in, in advance. But no, we hadn't prepared for the 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 uh, the stops in the season and um, like I said I think I think David Ross and the coaching staff are doing a good job of trying to instill that mentality that you know that's okay We're, we have a break and uh, let's you know it doesn't it doesn't mean you have to lose momentum it doesn't mean you have to get rusty uh, it just means maybe you can uh, you know feel um, a little fresher and a little friskier going into the next game. You know, let me raise the competitive integrity issue because let's let's take a step back. All right, the Cardinals have only played five games. Uh, the Reds are closing in on twenty games, and I, to me, it feels like this is starting to raise real questions about the competitive integrity of this season. Uh, like on so many levels, can the is, can the Cardinals cram fifty five games into six weeks? It seems like a lot, a lot to ask of any team. Um, or suppose they play ten fewer games than your team. Um, how? What does that say about the competitive integrity of playing the season under these conditions? Yeah, well, I, I think the ultimate decisions are going to be made um, you know, far above my head. And, and certainly I, I do think with the best of intentions and, and all those are, all those questions are real. And I think everyone's going to, going to wrestle with those, you know, that, um, you know, playing fewer games, there's, there's advantages to playing fewer games, uh, you know, playing, you know, a ton of games in a short amount of time has, has real tiredness and injury implications. And I mean, I think there, there's a lot of issues that, um, Major League Baseball has to work through. And I, like I said, I know that they have the best intentions of making those decisions. And I don't think there's a lot of easy solutions because, you know, at this point, you know, I think they will have missed 13 games if they don't play through through Wednesday. And, you know, who knows if they're going to play, you know, Thursday or Friday. So you're, you're looking at almost a quarter of a season. Uh, there are real questions that um, that have to be answered. And, and, and I don't think they're – like I said, I don't think there's easy answers. And, and – um, but I do know that um, I do know that that you know the thought process will be will be good by Major League Baseball, and then they want listen. They want the competitive integrity to be there for everybody. I, I I know they do, and yet 
Um, I mean, they're wrestling with this. Everybody is wrestling with this. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to infectious disease experts regularly throughout this whole thing. I, I talked to one who works in professional sports, and he said to me, he thinks if you have to shut down one team for a prolonged period, the only right thing to do is to shut everyone down. Um, so you just wonder, what's the right way to handle this? Uh, and how many more outbreaks before you have to do something different as a sport? Yeah. Well, I think we, um, or I hope that we, we, we learn something from, from these two outbreaks. You know, both of these things happened on the road. Um, and I don't think that's a surprise, you know, that I think that there's real challenges when you travel, um, planes and hotels and buses and smaller clubhouses and things like that. So I I think that that's something we have to really address that if we're going to travel for the next, you know, seven weeks, we need to make sure that, um, we probably change some of those protocols to make sure this doesn't happen. Um, because yeah, I think that, um, you know, we've obviously gotten through these these two outbreaks as a as a sport, and I think that you know, the, the, watching the games, I think the product on the field is is really good, and 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 really fascinating that the product has been as good as it is, despite the fact that there are no fans. Um, but um, I do feel like we have to limit these these outbreaks, and um, there's going to be there's going to be real challenges as we as we enter September. Um, you know, I think we have to make sure that, that that it stops at these two and it doesn't continue continue to happen. You know, throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I had a thought. I mean, uh, suppose this were to happen on September 29th instead of July 29th, then what? Yeah, yeah. No, I think those are those are all the right questions, and 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 I, I do think that um, sort of the mental flexibility that Major League Baseball has to have on all these things that they you know they're. You know, obviously they've, they've, they've changed some rules, you know, midstream, obviously we thought we were going to go to 26 players and, and we're not doing that. And, um, I think that they've realized that they have to be, adju- they have to be adjustable as things, as things happen. And I, that, I'm sure that won't be the last adjustment that we have to make. Um, but, you know, I think that, um, so many parts of this season are going well. And I think that, um, there's obviously real struggles, uh, with, those two outbreaks and, and, but at the same time, I do think that like so many parts of it, I think are going even better than we expected. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think there's a the real desire for everyone to, to keep going and, and, and have a playoffs. Yeah. And I think Jed, you know, part of that is, is leadership with, when you talk about individual teams and I'm curious to know about with David Ross, you know, being at the helm, you know, there was a lot of questions of here's a here's a guy who was literally a teammate a couple of years ago, and to try to figure out how to transition, where now you know he has to pull people who he used to catch out of the game against their will to some degree. Uh, you know what is how has that played like David Ross's you know leadership ability? Uh, how has that you know been able to navigate these unprecedented times? Really well, yeah. I think oh, a couple things. I think that um, his energy. Um, is contagious. And I think when you hear him in the dugout, when you hear him in the, in the clubhouse, um, you can't fake that. That's just who he is. That's who he's always been. He's always been loud. Um, and I think that, um, in a, in a quiet ballpark or a quiet clubhouse, it's really, really valuable. Um, and you know, one of the things we felt strongly about when we hired him was that this was always a guy, um, that, 
you know, led by being willing to tell people kind of hard truths, which I think is a big part of being a good manager is, you know, you're going to have 25 different, 26 different relationships with your players. And some of those guys, um, you need to put an arm around and be a friend. And some of those guys you need to, you need to be willing to, to be honest with and, and, and say that and say the truth and get on them at times. And he's willing to do that. He did it as a player and he does it as a manager and uh, he doesn't let things fester. You know, he, he sees something he doesn't like and he addresses it right away. And um, I think that's a, a really important part of being a manager. The players see that they see that things are going to get addressed and they respect it. And so he's, he's turned the page really easily from being a friend and teammate to, to being their manager. I, I do think having, uh, three seasons away from it really helps that, you know, he didn't just walk off the field, um, to do that. Um, and it, it makes me think to myself, like looking you know, looking back on, on, on my childhood, you know, the idea of having kind of a player manager, you know, it seems <laughs> even so, it seems even that much more, um, incredible looking back on it. I mean, I think he needed those three years away to be able to earn that respect and to, to separate himself. Um, I don't think he could have done this in 2017, you know, frankly. <laughs> Well, he danced with the stars, so you know that. <laughs> Better dancer or manager? <laughs> manager, but I, I tell you, I think it, I think it says a lot about his personality that he's willing to do that. You know, he yeah, said right? he said at the time he said, "Listen, you know, I'm a backup catcher, and all of these things are being thrown at me. You know, guy got carried off the field, and you know, dancing with the stars is asking me, and and he's like, how do I say no? He's like, this this isn't going to come around again." You know, and I think it's a good life lesson, right? He, he grabbed the opportunity when it was there. And uh, I don't think he has any, any regrets about it whatsoever. Yeah. I, like, I know he's been thinking about managing for a long yeah. time. I've been, I mean, I've been talking to him about it since he played for Bobby Cox. So I know, I know it's always been in his head. I know he's always observed a lot. Can, can you think of a, of a moment, something that, that that's happened so far where you said to yourself, this guy is a natural born manager or some, some, something that he did that maybe was different than he would have handled it as a player? Um, well, I feel like these are difficult questions because I never want to talk about specifically talk about things that happen in the clubhouse. Cause that, sure. that's not fair, but I will tell you that um, he had a couple of things that happened early. You know, Theo and I went down to, uh, his office, you know, after a game and he mentioned something that he had handled in the, in the dugout and he said it so matter of factly what he said, how he said it, you know, and then we found out through other coaches you know, how, and players, how the, the player responded and you just realize, you know, like I said, you, he handles those things in the moment, but he handles them in a, in a way that the players respect. And I just think that is so incredibly important. And, you know, when you look back on that, like all the different guys he played for, I think you know, even in the interview process, he talked about that. He talked about what he gathered, you know, from, you know, playing for, for Bobby Cox or, or playing for, for Tito or, or playing for Joe Madden. Um, I think he did a good job of paying attention and grabbing, you know, little pieces from each of their, of their personalities and, and, and taking those things away. And then he's going to kind of mold that into his own thing. But uh, I do think that he just handles those, those moments really well. Um, and he sees the game really well. And I think that's something that um, is an undervalued uh, trade or quality in a manager is, you know, 
if a pitcher has good stuff or bad stuff, he's not going to go on results. He's, he's going to, he's going to go by what his eyes tell him. You know, it didn't look like he had good stuff today or, or wow. Like I, even though he gave up that home run, I felt like the ball was really coming out well. And, you know, he, I, I trusted him and, you know, guys have to really use their eyes. You know, I, I, I heard so many stories about like Tony LaRusso, for example, just seeing the game incredibly well and using his instincts and just paying attention all the time. And, that's what I always see with, with, with David as well, just the, a guy that, that sees the game, pays attention, and is willing to kind of go by what his, what his eyes are telling him. Yeah, and Jed, I mean, so much now, even with that, you know, that sort of visual coming from, you know, the leadership role as a manager, uh, ends up sort of, you know, sometimes colliding, but also coalescing with this analytics world. And, uh, you know, we know, well, I'm going to, I'm going to coin a term. Uh, I, I, I just want licensing fee. So I'm going to call it <laughs> pandalytics. Does that work for you? Pandalytics? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Nobody's taken that yet. Right. Yeah. No. So, you, you got that one. <laughs> all right. Good. Yeah, so we can, I can see the lo- I can see the logo too, you know, the panda and then, you know, some sort of equation. Uh, but you know, I, we are in this sort of, uh, we always hear about small sample size, right? Small sample size, small sample size. Uh, so how do you balance this sort of unprecedented world where you are in small databases and small samples, but at the same time you have a new leader that's trying to hone in on his instincts at the same time to try to you know, be able to trust himself when you have to kind of go beyond the numbers? I mean, what has that been like under this environment? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, all winter before he managed his first game uh, and then actually the, during the whole break um, he really spent a lot of time with our, our research and development staff you know going over game strategy and lineup strategy and so I think I think David has really embraced the analytics and I think that's wonderful and I think you have to do that to to manage the game effectively but at the same time you also have to use your eyes you know the, you know some sometimes guys don't have it and you know, if, if a guy, if a particular day that, you know, guy doesn't look like his mechanics are right or doesn't look like the ball's coming out of his hand that day or a guy's swing looks broken that day, um, at that point you can't go by the analytics, right? You, you have to be able to see that and realize, you know, that it's not that guy's day, I'm going to go get him. And that's what I think he does really well um, is he's willing to, you know, willing to, to make those to make those decisions in that moment based on his eyes, even though, it might not be what the numbers say. He said, well, that guy doesn't have it today. I'm going to go get someone else. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the small sample. It's just something we have to deal with. You know, there's um, – things aren't going to balance out this year. And we all know that intuitively. And I think as a result, there's probably going to be have, have to be a few more moments where you play the hot hand or where you use your instincts because – um, we are going to be using a small sample and you don't really have time to, to let a guy get, you know, that hundred, 150 plate appearances under his belt to see how he's doing. You might have to make a decision before that. Um, and so I, I do think that it's going to force all managers to make decisions in a little bit different way because, uh, you're not just going to say, okay, I know this player is going to come out of this slump. I'm just going to keep playing him over and over. You, you might not have that time. You know, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because um, that could be an incredible challenge for a guy who'd never managed before, right? But it, it sounds like you're saying you don't have to script the games for David Ross. You don't have to tell him 
this is how you need to handle a player or a situation or the lineup. Uh, am, I, am I reading that right? Yeah, I, I think we feel very comfortable with with what he's with the way he thinks through the game. And, and also, one thing that has really helped us is um, Andy Green um, is our bench coach, and you know, he managed in the National League for the last four years and was really well thought of as a as an in game tactician. And so having Andy with David, I think, can really help, you know, as you maneuver through the bullpen and, and different decisions. And and frankly, you know, having a DH in the National League probably helps a little bit this year, honestly. You know, that there's some of the nuances that go on with, you know, double switches or, you know, you know having to use more relievers because uh, of the pitcher spot. I think that helps um, this year. So that might have been a nice benefit as far as some of those really complicated things that can happen in the National League. You know, you used the word energy before and uh, just watching your team, it feels like your team has played with tremendous energy. And, you know, when I was there in spring training, uh, I, I just got a vibe from your players, not so much that they felt like their window to win was closing, but that there was a there was an urgency to winning together this year uh, with this group. Uh, did I read that right? And have you seen that so far? Yeah, well, I think that the energy, you know, it, it's so different um, when there's no fans in the ballpark. You really hear both dugouts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've definitely played some teams, you know, that uh, I thought the dugouts had a lot of energy. But I will say, like, every game, our our dugout has been loud. They've been into it. And, I mean, I'm sure Doug can speak to this, but as much as that sounds like kind of rah-rah college stuff, I think it's really important. That was one of the things Joe talked about a lot after games was – the energy in the dugout. And I think, you know, yelling and screaming doesn't really matter, but it's more like how into the game are guys? Are they paying attention? Are they locked in? Um, you know, I think that less over 60 games, but definitely over 162, you know, there's a sense I've always had that, that, you know, that if a team really shows up focused and with energy every day, there's a lot of 50, 50 games that can be won that way, you know? Um, and, and you're talking about a sport where, you know, Winning six out of ten means you're a fantastic team. You know, you're probably looking at somewhere you're know, trying to win, you know, fifty-five to fifty-eight percent of the time. And and when you when you're talking about that small margin, you know, having the team that's going to win those Sunday day games, those you know day games after night games, those long rain delay games, like well, there's a lot of games where the the team that's that's locked in and and focused is is the team that's going to win. And so I, I do think that. Um, it's one of those things you you know it when you see it with a team, and I, and I feel really good about this club that we're we're definitely into it every day. And uh, there's a there's a real real energy that David brings, as you said, and I think that helps in those in those moments. Yeah, I saw well, I saw the interview. Uh, I think it was with Marquis with Tony Andraki. He takes the hitter from in spring training. He interviewed uh, the guys before they kind of got up to the batter's box. He almost like replicated and recreated it. So one of it was, was with Jason Hayward. And he said, he hears Javi Baez, like yelling at him, <laughs> like all players, like everything he does, he notices. And, uh, and you know, he, he's kept that going. And of course now you can hear everything <laughs> it was echoing. Uh, but, but yeah, that tone is, has, has been there. And I know like you don't necessarily have these dog days. I mean, and I was on a lot of unfortunately teams that were 23 <laughs> games out of it in August. <laughs> so, uh, but this team, you know, has a lot to play for given a, as a unit, because I remember the last couple of Septembers, you know, the sort of struggles. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and Jason and Jason mentioned it. You know, I do think there's a sense from our guys, and rightfully, you know, we've 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 talked about this, and we have a lot of guys that are free agents after the 21 season. Um, you know, I think we've been honest that you know, realistically, you know, we certainly want to have a lot of guys that are you know lifetime Cubs and stay here a long time. But the idea of, of being able to keep every single guy and be able to keep this entire core intact for you know into their mid 30s is is probably not realistic, and so. You know, that, that's not breaking news. That's just, that, that's fairly obvious to everybody that this, this group can't stay together forever. And I do think they, um, they cherish what they've done together. They, they cherish their time together. And I do think they want, um, they don't want to go out the way last year ended. I mean, last year ended so painfully and we lost nine in a row. I mean, you know, won a couple games in a row and then, and then lost the last ones. We lost 10, out, 10 of our last 12 games last wow. year. And I mean, fizzling out like that, was so painful and um, they didn't want that to be their last memory of this group together. And I think they've done a good job of trying to erase that so far this year. You know, you touched on no fans too. And when I I think of Wrigley field, uh, like the fans are one of the first things I think about just the whole aura of Wrigley is the people, the people who are, were such a part of the experience. Love every minute of sitting in Wrigley Field watching the Cubs play. And can you capture what a different experience it is? I mean, it's basically you and Theo and a bunch of cardboard cutouts sitting there now. <laughs> and, we, and we haven't done the cutouts thing, so we're not even... Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so it, it's surreal. <laughs> I, I, and... and uh, I've talked to Theo about this a lot during the course of the season. I don't want to get used to this. Um, you know, at the beginning, it was truly surreal. And early on, they didn't even have the crowd noise. So you would hear every grunt and every yell. And, and now they've got the crowd noise that helps to, to kind of, you know, drone that out a little bit. But it's so strange to watch a game in Wrigley Field with, you know, 10 people in the stands and uh you know in some strange way there, there's a it's kind of cool you know you're like oh my god this is wrigley field and it's the scoreboard's on the pa's on the, you know we're watching this like incredible sandlot game basically on tv <laughs> um but at the same time i don't want to get used to that and part of what wrigley field is is that incredible energy um but you know one of the things i was talking to a friend about yesterday that i think is really interesting and i touched on it before is that you know, the quality of play and the intensity has been real. And it goes to show you that these same players once played, you know, high school and college games with no fans. They played minor league games with very few fans. And it goes to show you that I think the fans add to that intensity. Uh, But it makes you realize that, you know, almost all of that intensity is internal. It's the game. It's the competition. It's what they do. And, you know, I was watching the Dodgers – Padres game the other night and um you know Chris Taylor um you know threw a guy out of the plate uh to win the game and watching guys jump around I was like what a first of all what an unbelievable play uh to make on that on that um I think Machado hit that fly ball what a a great play but also just you realize like the sharpness and the crispness and the intensity of the play that's just the game that's internal that's competition and I don't think I would have realized that to the same extent but now watching these guys play without fans, it makes you realize just how talented they are. And, and that 
that little extra adrenaline isn't even needed from the fans. They, they're that good without it. I wonder, though, if it's every team. You know, we keep talking about energy in this conversation, but I really do feel like uh, the ability of some of these teams to generate their own energy in the absence of fans could be a separator. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, and I have concerns. I think that, um, you know, I think that the teams that have it will continue to have it and, and their success will probably um, perpetuate that. But I do worry about the opposite of it. And, and we get into September and their teams are out of it. I worry that they have a lack of energy, you know, oh, that, yeah. um, you know, they, they, listen, it's different. You have no fans. The protocols are cumbersome and, you know, there's going to be a point at which some, a lot of teams are playing just for themselves or just for stats or, you know, for pride. And, you know, I hope that the, the product is still really good at that point because um, it's been good so far, but yeah, we need all those teams that kind of continue to stay locked in in order to, to provide that. Yeah, that's a real worry. And like just the whole grueling nature of what this schedule could look like going down the stretch. I, I think the Pirates now become the 10th team that has had that has had some number of games postponed because of COVID. And think about how the the, the games are going to pile up on some of these teams. You went through this two years ago, right? Was You had one day off the last five weeks of the season, if I remember right. Did, didn't that take a toll on your team? Yeah, I mean, you never know. You can't replay the season without that. But, yeah, I mean, we played whatever it was, I think 42 out of 43 to, to end the season. And we were exhausted. There's no question. Our guys were exhausted, and we got caught from behind. And you know, the Brewers played incredible baseball. They caught us. And we had the, the one-game playoff. And then we had the, the, the wild-card playoff, and we didn't, didn't even have days off in there. So I mean, it was exhausting, and, and I do feel like it takes a toll. And, and it took a toll on us, and that was with – an expanded 40, you know, 40 player roster. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think playing, playing with 28 throughout September. Uh, I, I listen, I, I think there's no doubt. I mean, I think that um, playing that many days in a row is physically demanding, but I also think there's a mental grind of not having any days off. And you see that after a while, you know, you know, full well, when you catch a team that's playing, you know, they're, 18th, 19th, and 20th days in a row. If you catch that team during the schedule, you usually do pretty well. <laughs> and for against anybody, I think every team gets tired. Every team needs that day off. And I think that if some of these teams have to play for a long time without a day off or stack a bunch of doubleheaders, that's going to be an incredible mental challenge for them. Yeah, and, and, and John, it seems like the league is certainly open to making you know midstream adjustments, right? They, you know, maybe they will expand the rosters or have the taxi squad or, you know, uh, to break up. Cause it does, <clears throat> it does look like there's going to be some teams that are just going to be stockpiled with games. And um, so I guess I'm curious, you, you mentioned things that you don't want to get used to with, with no fans. Uh, how about the things you want to get used to that you think could really go forward in the next iteration of baseball, whether it's the DH or the, as I call it, the base angel ghost runner at second. Base. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, yeah. It's funny on the base angel thing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I would do it in the 10th inning. Uh, I think that's a question, like whether you allow the 10th inning to be normal. Um, but I will say this, I, the, the super long extra inning game in, in the regular season is just the worst. And I think I, I think I speak for every GM in baseball to say that those are just, you know, weak ruiners when you have that game, you know, that, 
your bullpen's exhausted. You get some starter that has to get up and on his, you know, on his off day. And it's just players are exhausted and you know, full well, it's going to, the, the domino effect of the rest of your week is going to be significant. And there's just no reason for that to happen. You know, uh, it, we're, player safety gets compromised and, um, you know, we play enough games in a row. We don't need to do that. And so, you know, frankly, whether it's ending games and ties or this base angel thing, I, I do think that, um, I do think this is something that should, that I hope continues, I guess, because I do think that, Listen, in playoffs, let a game go that long. It's fine. It's the playoffs, and you're, and you're playing the same team the next day, and, and, and it's all good. But during the season, you know, I was watching Sunday Night Baseball last night, and, um, you know, I was watching with my son, and we, we, we you know, watched the, how they, you know, go to a runner in second you know, for extra innings. And, you know, it, it, I think there's some excitement that comes with that. You know, you know the game's going to end quickly. And um, it, it provides a little spark at the end of a game. And also people don't sit there for six hours. And so uh, I'm, I'm in favor. Like I said, I think the debate to me is whether you want to, to do it in the 10th inning or not, whether you want to play the 10th inning straight up. But um, I'm, I'm in favor of it. I think, I think it's exciting. And I think that uh, it, it takes away those, those nightmare scenarios where both teams are exhausted. And I like it. Like I hear people say, oh, it's not baseball. Are you actually watching? Um, you know, they, they decide the World Cup on penalty kicks. <laughs> this is way, way more baseball-like than that. There's so much strategy that goes into it. It's not bun them over, get them in. That is not happening. We've had some wild stuff happen. That, hey, you talk about that Indians game on Sunday night. The, the Indians squeezed in a run in extra innings. It was, it's cool. I, I love thinking along with the managers. Uh, I was just gonna say. I mean, I thought the Shields put down a you know great bunt right there, and that that was that was really exciting, and that was and that was real strategy, you know. And even if you look at that inning, right? You know, Lindor swung away to start the inning, um, and you know, he hit it to Robert, and his arm is too good, so you couldn't get the guy to third. And and you know, right there, you think to yourself, you know, once that runner doesn't get to third um, with one out, you think that you know the advantage is sort of with. You know, with the White Sox, so I, I think there, yeah, there's real strategy, and it's the same for both teams. So yeah, I, I think, um, I think, it, yeah, I think it's exciting, and I think that um, there's a, definitely a place for it during the regular season. And and Jed, I think, uh, I guess one question I have within it is, you know, how how different would we perceive this? You know, recognizing that some of it is you know injury uh, and and time and bullpen. But how different do you think this would be if we were in still in an era where starters all you know went eight innings, nine innings? You know, how much of it do you think is just sort of you know how bullpens have evolved that you you know the more innings you play past nine, you, you end up yeah. using you know ten pitchers? No, no question, and I think that's a, that's one of the parts of the game that I think is going to have to be thought through over the next ten years. You know, is that. Um, you know, that use of so many pitchers per game and, 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 and you know, is going to be real health issues that come along with it and, and, and also pace a game and, and, and you know, potential lack of offense issues. And you know, I do think that um, the lack of the ball in play um, is something that I think is a, is a problem for the game. You know, we have to, we have to have the ball in play more. I, I've seen all those stats about, and I know, I know it's hard to, to do apples to apples with this season because of the layoff. But, you know, the, the, the overall batting average right now is like 230. 
That's right. Um, and that's a problem. And the, the number of strikeouts over hits is, is a problem. And I think that we have to, we have to be willing to address those things. You know, other sports do that really easily. Um, their sports lend themselves to, you know, changing the three second call or changing pass interference or whatever those things are. You can change the, the, you can affect the number of points scored in a, in a, in a game in basketball or football easier than you can in baseball, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And, you know, I, I look at, listen, I, I look at the you know pitching ninja stuff on, on, on Twitter every night and, the stuff that's coming out of guys' hands is, is it's otherworldly. It, it just is. And, and you know, and uh, I think that um, we have to pay attention to that. You know, if velocity is going to keep going up and the stuff is going to keep going up with sort of evolution and, you know, modern pitch design, um, that's great. Um, but we can't have a sport where it's, 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 it's impossible to score, you know, or, or, or impossible to hit or just trying to hit home runs all the time. That's not the goal here. So I do think that, there are probably some real adjustments that have to be made over, you know, over the next, uh, next 10 years or so. Um, you know, one rules change I do, that I've liked is the three batter, the three batter minimum. I think, um, that's real strategy also, you know, it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find myself still, you know, during, you know, Oh wait, he, he has to face these guys. You know, you're so used to the you know right, left, right stuff. And now all of a sudden, you know, you, I even find myself caught off guard sometimes like, Oh, right. You know, the, this guy can't can't get pulled here. He's gonna have to he's gonna have to have a bad matchup, and that's good for the sport. It's good that you know a guy like a, a Rizzo or Bryant is gonna get some some uh, favorable matchups because you know for the most part the the best players in the game, the Trouts and the Yelichs and the Betts of the world, they don't face they don't get good matchups during the, during the late innings, and I think that's I think that's a negative. You know, um, we need to make sure that those guys are able to shine as well. Yeah, that's one of the parts of that rule that people just didn't pay attention to is just look at the numbers sometimes. Left-handed hitters against left-handed relievers late in games. And you'll see why you need to give the great left-handed hitters in the game the opportunity to face a right-handed pitcher with the game on the line. The game would be so much better when that happens. And it's happening now because of this rule. Um, uh, you know, we, we've researched, we've researched that, researched that in the past and we've looked at it and a guy like Rizzo, you know, after the sixth inning was facing a lefty or a closer. That's it. Yeah. Right. And you think to yourself, think how hard it is to, to be a left, a great left-handed hitter. And, and, and it's like that for all those guys. You know, that you look at like, you know, all the all the Yelichs and the Carpenters and the Vados, like it's like that for all those guys all the time. And it's not really and, and, and frankly, you add in the shift to that, you know, and you know, life as a left hand hitter is difficult. And I think that the best guys have have learned to be the shift and learned to adjust. But I, I do think with the shift and and without the three batter minimum, I think that life was really difficult for the, the best left hand hitters. Yeah, and you, and you brought you brought up uh, getting the ball and play more and trying to counteract velocity. I, look, you're one of the most thoughtful people I know in the game. So, give us some ideas. How can baseball get some more balls in play? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you have to incentive. You have to uh, change the rules in such a way that incentivizes it, you know, or or changes things. And you know, one thing that that we've kicked around and has been kicked around is, is limiting the number of pitchers on a, on a staff, you know? Yeah. Um, 
and it's crazy, you know, when I think to like when I started in baseball, you know, you're talking about, you know, 10, 11 man pitching staffs. And then it, it, when it was 11, you, know, you thought you were insane to have 12. <laughs> like, oh my God, we're going to have 12. Like, this, is, this is so embarrassing. We're going to have 12 for a while. Like, I can't believe this. And then everyone went to 12 and then occasionally you go to 13 and you'd be embarrassed when you were in 13. You know, we had moments, we had, we had moments last day, we were at 14 and we're like, what are we doing? You know, and it's just, um, it's crazy when that happens and, and we, that, that creep has happened across the game. And I think the, you know, the, the, I think it's done a couple of things, right? It, it's allowed us to have a, you know, a gazillion matchup relievers and one inning relievers. And, and it's also uh, shortened the bench. And so like um, having that, you know, outstanding, you know, pinch hitter that, you know, that Matt stairs type guy that's going to come into the game late to, to hit against the closer or hit against the eighth inning guy. Well, that guy doesn't exist anymore because no one can afford to carry the, that, that kind of player on their bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's, there's multiple things that, that are in play. And I think when you, when you shorten up the number of pitchers and you probably have to do it gradually, but if you shortened up the number of pitchers, then, you know, starting pitchers would, would be incentivized to go deeper in games because you have to eat up innings. Um, and then benches would be longer and therefore like offenses w- would be able to match up better and to, to, and to, to counteract pitching moves better. So I mean, that's one idea of, of doing it is kind of manipulating the roster to what ultimately major league baseball is going to want, which is the ball and play more. Um, and, and let's face it, you know, the right now, if you're a starting pitcher, you're incentivized to go out and throw five innings as hard as you can, you know, and, and, and guys are maxing out for 80 to hundred pitches. They're going to, they're going to, no one's uh, settling into a start. You know, I, I think back now on, I feel like a dinosaur saying this, but I think back like <laughs> sitting, sitting behind the plate, um, you know, at Fenway and watching Halliday against us. And he would just be sitting there, you know, 88 to 90, just two-seamer cutter, two-seamer cutter, kind of in his rocking chair. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, you would – someone hit a double or you, you know, double on a single or whatever it would be, and the next thing you know, it would be, you know, it would be a situation where he needed to get out of the inning, and all of a sudden it was – his stuff was completely different. <laughs> and there was this notion, like, he was going to – cruise so to speak right he was going to he was going to have it in cruise control when he and then when he needed it he would step on it and he would get you out and but he was going to pitch eight innings that night right he was going to go deep in that game it was his game and that mentality is not in the game anymore uh, for better or for worse and so i think i think starting pitchers are incentivized to go out you're going out from pitch one and you're, and you're showing your best stuff the entire time because you've got you know you've got a 13 man pitching staff behind you. That's going to, that's going to carry the rest of the game. And I think that, you know, the ball would be in play a lot more if, if, if starting pitchers couldn't take that max uh, mentality the entire time. Yeah. I mean, and I think the, you know, I think of a lot of pitchers I faced that you, you saw them that third time around and and you realize that they still had 97, you know, they, you know, I played with like Schilling is a perfect example. Like, uh, watching him work from center field, you know, and he would say, it's like, look, I have like three or four times where I can go to that 98 when I need it, you know, and he knew how to pace it. Uh, and there was an artistry to that. Um, right. and, and I think sometimes with, you know, I guess as a, the analytics, so, you know, in a sort of general sense is there's, 
there's a kind of sometimes a disconnect with the low percentage play because it's, you know, you're not going to try to go into these low percentage plays like facing Christian Yelich for the righty or, or uh, stealing third base where you're, you know, you're increasing your chance of scoring a run goes up by a little bit, but if you get caught, it goes down by a lot and it starts to erase even the desire to do it. And I think the inspiration so much can be in these low percentage success stories, right? We, we jump out of our chairs when we review these games and we say, wow, like what were the odds of that catch being made? But he made it and it was a game winning play. Like, you know, and I think, I think sometimes we, we end up losing those plays because the math, you know, doesn't say that you should take that kind of risk. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I always feel like I have to be careful when I talk about this stuff because to be clear, you know, um, really smart people are trying to maximize their team's chances to win. And that's what they should be doing. That's what we do. Right. And, and, and so, you know, not facing hitters at third time through the order, you know, going, you know, going with, you know, with um, as many platoon matchups as you can, you know, uh, shifting like crazy. These are all things that are, 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 are the right thing to do. They are maximizing your chance to win. And as long as those are within the rules, we're all going to do them. And I think the only way that you can change behavior is to change the rules. And, and I think that's this reality, right? Like, like, I think that you have to realize that, you know, this is what we're paid for. You know, we're paid to maximize our team's chances to win. And it doesn't, it doesn't um, do any of us any good. If I think the game is a better game when starting pitchers are going seven innings and you're not, you're not, you're not facing a parade of arms. Well, you know, it doesn't, uh, I'm not just going to decide that I think this is the right way to play baseball. I'm going to do something that's um, hurting our team's chances to win. You're not going to do that. So you have to, you have to you know, change the rosters or change the way the game is played to incentivize that. And maybe that's not, maybe what my idea is not the right one, but somewhere out there is an idea where, we can encourage the ball to be in play more. And frankly, I do believe in my heart, I do believe that there's something in the sport that's a, bene- that's a benefit to starting pitching. Um, I think that starting pitching helps to tell the story of a game. You know, when you look, I guess you don't look in the paper anymore, but when you look on the MLB app in the morning and you see who's pitching that day, that should be part of the game. You know, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to see Hendricks against Woodruff today. Wow, you know Woodruff has incredible stuff. Like he's gonna, you know, he's gonna be upper nineties, but Hendricks is gonna be, you know, they're probably gonna be equally effective. But Hendricks is gonna do it, you know, by by throwing eighty eight and you know, sinker, changeup, you know, new curveball. Like he's it's gonna be a totally different matchup. That's part of the story of that game is the guy with great stuff against the command guy. And I think that if you just get to a point where like pitching is anonymous, so to speak, that you're going to see a bunch of openers or you're going to see five or six pitchers every single night. I do think that that takes away a little bit of the story of what you're going to watch. Um, and I think that would be a shame if we get to that point where starting pitching um, or, or the, the pitcher that's going to control the majority of the game is no longer a real factor. But again, unless we change the rules, people are going to do um, exactly what they're incentivized to do. And right now we're incentivized to have a bunch of guys throwing as hard as they can and, and, and using them in short bursts. And that's, that's the right way, the effective way to, to try to win right now. I completely agree with you on this. I've said this a million times. What makes great baseball strategy does not always make great 
entertainment strategy. And it's still an entertainment business. And yet there's so much pushback, Jed, when you even talk about changing the rules. You, I mean, you hear it within the game from guys in front offices who like the ability to do whatever the, 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 the data says they should do. You hear it from fans who say the game's not broken. Don't try to fix it. Look, we, we, you, the three of us love baseball. But why can't we try to change it and make it better? Yeah, I mean that's one of the challenges of baseball that we have this history that people are afraid to to mess with, and change is hard. Change is hard in everything, you know. Um, and uh, I'm sort of hopeful, like you know, listen. Hopefully, there's a um, opportunity in every crisis, you know. And I look at the obviously COVID is a is a crisis, and I hope there's real opportunity. Um, to realize that we can do things differently, that we can, we can, you know, put some rules in that were put in place, you know, because of this, of the pandemic, but realize, okay, wait a second, we, we can change the rules and think everything is not gonna, gonna go haywire. And listen, I, I don't envy, you know, Rob Manfred and Dan Halem and, and Tony Clark, and I don't envy them trying to try to change the game or, or make rules to change the game because there's so much pushback. There's so many people out there that, that believe that, you know, it's like the, you know, the, the, there's stone tablets that baseball is written on and we can never change them. And, and I, I, I don't believe that's the case. And I don't think they believe that's the case. But, but you're totally right that there's so much pushback whenever we try to do something that it makes those really difficult. And let's face it, we're, we're getting to a place from a, 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 like an offense-defense pitching-hitting balance point. We're getting to a crisis point and we have to make real changes and, and hopefully – some of these small changes that we've made because of COVID will make people realize that we can make slightly bigger changes for the good of our game. Yeah. Uh, look, we can't have a general manager on the show and not talk about the trading deadline. I, I know the season started like <laughs> 10 minutes ago, but somehow or other the, the deadline is in three weeks. Uh, I, I'm curious how you think this deadline is going to be different than in other years. It, it's a great question and one that um, it's been really interesting because you're right. It's like, it feels like it's a trade deadline so quick and you're, you're, you're used to um, that sense of like getting into the season, you know, learning your team, you know, kind of spending that time to, to figure things out. And this year it's going to be really quick. It's going to be upon us really fast. Teams are going to have to, the teams are, that are out of it or, or want to make trades are going to have to um, make that decision really quickly. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, I do think teams are, will be active and, um, I mean, David Ross said it, if there's a, if there's a trophy, you, you want to win it. And I think there's a lot of teams that, that feel that way, you know, the 60 game season or not, people want to, people are going to want to improve their rosters. And so I do expect there's going to be deals. Maybe there's not as many deals or, or maybe it's slightly different than the past. And I'm not sure exactly all the ways it, could, it will be different. Um, but I know there's going to be activity and you're right. It's coming up really quickly. <laughs> you know, Theo mentioned the other day that one of the things you have to factor in is, are, are we going to get through this season as a sport? Like how could you trade for a, a rental type player and not, not knowing if the season might shut down in a couple of weeks? No, that's right. And I think that, um, you know, something like the, you know, having a, sort of an outbreak free couple of weeks leading into the deadline could probably you know, spur some activity. You know, I think if we, if we have, you know, uh, outbreaks or problems, 
you know, like we have with the Marlins and the, and the Cardinals, we have those going into, um, going into the, the deadline. And then maybe that does kind of lessen people's desire because they're, they're anxious about it. So I, I think that, I think that's real. I think that, um, you know, human nature is that, you know, you, if you're going to give up something, you want to be pretty sure that you're going to see the benefit of what you're gaining. And, um, if there's concern that you're not going to see that benefit because the season's not going to make it or, or whatnot, I think that that's going to lessen people's desire. So I think, yeah, I think that's a real, a real dynamic. And I think, like I said, the couple of weeks leading up to it will probably, and the stability and the health of those couple of weeks will probably um, contribute to how much people are willing to give up. You know, it's like, you know, I, I know I, as a player, I never wanted to be seen as an asset, but you know, <laughs> You know, you could come up with some sort of lease back program or something like that. Zero <laughs> percent <laughs> down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, I think, but I think there, there, there will be. You know, people will try to get creative with, with conditions and things like that. I think that's that, that's probably something that, that that could and will happen because it is different than than ever before, and people will have to figure out within the rules what they can do in that way. I think we're going to set a record for most players to be named later, right? Like you think about all these prospects you'd normally trade for, either they're not playing at all or they're in the alternate site. You have no eyeballs on them. You have no stats. You have no video on them. I don't know how you trade for a kid right now. Yeah, it's hard. And I think that's one of the parts of, of the summer that I think is really, you know, the most disappointing is that, you know, these might like, obviously you can add some prospects to your, your alternate site, but not enough, obviously. And I just think that we, we don't talk about that enough that there's so many professional baseball players have not been able to play baseball. And in, in some ways, um, those professional players have played less than high school kids. They've played less than college kids in summer leagues. Like they, they've played the least of anyone. And it's a shame, you know, that they're, they're losing, a summer of playing and all they're doing is working out and, and practicing, but it's not the same as playing against, you know, your the best competition. And so it's a real, it's a real loss for our sport that, that, you know, the great majority of our great young players in the minor leagues have, have had to do nothing but throw bullpen sessions or hit into cages the, the entire time. Hey, can I ask you one more thing that I've been thinking about that, that I, I think we're heading for this and it, we've never seen it. And that is the possibility that the entire postseason could be played at neutral sites. Uh, I mean, for obviously for health and safety reasons, sure. because there are no fans in the stands. How would you feel about that? Um, a neutral site postseason play in um, a bubble or a couple of bubbles? Well, I think that if that's the way we feel, like we can definitely get through, you know, all those different series. I, I think that it makes a lot of sense. And, and again, I, you know, I think that those are decisions that are going to go on, you know, well above my head, but I do think there's a lot of travel in the postseason, a lot, you know, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, having teams bouncing around playing two games here and two games there, it, it might prove to be, to be too much. And if we need to, to play in a bubble to make sure we get through it. I think that, that makes, that makes a, a ton of sense. And, you know, obviously um, in a normal situation, you don't love the idea of neutral sites, but if we're playing without fans anyway, I'm not sure it really matters. You know, that, I mean, personally, I don't, other than the travel aspect and the slight comfort of a home clubhouse versus a visiting clubhouse, like, do I really feel like there's a home field advantage right now at Wrigley or, did, or when we went into 
Cincinnati that I feel like there's a big home field advantage for them. Not really. You know, I think it's a, it's a comfort issue, but you know, without fans cheering you on or things like that, I don't think that home field is, is the same. Now I could be proven totally wrong and we could look, we could look up at the end of the season and home teams win a, a bigger percentage of the of games than normal. And we'll have to look into why that is. And we'll, that'll be, that'll be interesting. But I do feel like if we're playing games in front of no fans, I don't see what the difference is of, of playing at neutral sites. And if that's the way to get these games in and make sure we play a postseason, then maybe that's exactly the right thing to do. You know, we've talked a lot about all these changes that we would like to see stick around. This is one that I personally would not want to see stick around. Um, do you share that or am I missing something? Oh yeah. No, no, no. I think that um, the, the electricity of a home ballpark during the postseason uh, is incredible. It's like one of the greatest things about our sport. Um, you know, when I think about, you know, my favorite moments at Fenway or my favorite moments at Wrigley, it's about the crowd and, and just the electricity. And I do think that, you know, the, the tension that builds in a playoff game at the end of a game is, is one of the greatest things about our sport. And, um, taking that away in a neutral site, I think would be, would be a shame. Uh, and frankly, um, I think that that's a lot of what you play for, for 162 games. You, you want to get that extra game in the series at home, even though obviously last year, all the, all the road teams, you know, uh, won those games, but still you want those games at home. And, um, I think you'd be taking something away. So no, I don't, I don't want to see, you know, uh, neutral site playoffs. I, I think that that's one of the greatest things about our sport is, is, is having home playoff games. Boy, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, um, 2016, I know you won the World Series on the road, but you won the NLCS at home, right? And just the to to hear those people singing "Go Cubs Go," I can still hear. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I, I I'll never forget um, Miguel Montero in Game One hit the we were tied three three in the bottom of the eighth. Oh, yeah, he hit a hanging O two slider for a, for a grand slam, and, and I honestly thought that the place was going to fall down. <laughs> and, you know, that's, you know, probably one of my, one of my two or three best memories of that run was just how loud the, the crowd was. It was incredible. And, and I think, like I said, taking that away, there's no, there's no neutral site that can have that, that kind of energy. And, you know, I have similar memories from, you know, from Fenway. And, and I think you're right. I think that like this, that's what, you know, you think about a fan base that hasn't had, you know, postseason baseball in a while, and they 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 rebuild and they get back to the postseason. Like those first playoff games are unlike anything else, and I hope we never take that away. Look, this is the greatest thing about sports. Uh, this is this is something that sports still does for us that almost nothing else in our lives can do. Where forty thousand people show up on the north side of Chicago at the same place, experience the same powerful bonding emotion together what else in our lives brings us together to feel those feelings like sports does no. is there anything I th nothing i think i think that's exactly right and I, and I think that um you know there are there are ways i think that life will will change forever after this you know and, and behaviors that will change but there's also things that i think that you know you know at some point knock on wood we have a vaccine and and, and we you know control this, eradicate this, and we get back to, to some semblance of, of normal, there's, some, there's certain parts of, of living that I think people 
will realize how much they missed. And I think that going to sporting events and plays and, and, and you know, things like that where they, 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 they feel that sense of community, I think that that is um, – people will rush back to do that, in my opinion, because I totally agree with you. You know, going to a Friday afternoon game at Wrigley Field and, and, and being with 40,000 people and having a few beers and, and just enjoying, you know, being alive, I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Or, you know, going to a, a Broadway show or something like that and watching in, incredible performers and, and, and sort of having that reverence of, the, of those actors and, you know, with those people in the crowd. I think that people miss that a great deal. And I think that will come back. People will be, will be just so thrilled to be able to do that again. And um, it's something we've missed. But at, at the same time, I hope we don't do that until it's safe. You know, let's wait until it's totally safe because it's not the same if we have trepidation. But if we don't have trepidation and people are, are free to, to be as excited as ever, I think it's a wonderful thing. Well, Jed, just uh, thinking of Broadway, Wesleyan University, Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> uh, did you know him in college? Uh, what, Hamilton, what, what's, been, what's been the sweep for your alma mater here? <laughs> I, did, you know, I, I didn't know him. Um, I didn't know him in school. He was a little bit, he's a little bit younger than me. Um, and uh, I, I will say, I mean, it's been a, it's been a great source of, of pride for Wesleyan. I mean, it's, he's, he's incredible, you know, and I will say I, I personally found, I, I, I went to Hamilton a couple of times and I found it to be one of the most inspirational things, uh, not for the play, but just thinking like how, how a person at that age could kind of write such a masterpiece <laughs> and thinking to myself, what an incredible sense of pride to, to be able to create this thing that, you know, millions and millions of people are, are, are just willing to do anything to watch and, and, and really is creating something so amazing, you know? And so I, every time I've seen it, I, I come away with that same sense of inspiration that, wow, a, a, a peer of mine created this thing. My goodness, I need to get to work. You know, so. <laughs> hey, you you ended a hundred year old curse, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that that yeah. would be an interesting. All right, who's all right? Who? Which Wesleyan grad <laughs> had the greatest achievement? <laughs> was it the Cubs winning the World Series with Jed Hoyer as the GM, or was it writing Hamilton? Wow, that's yeah. a that's a good one. That is a good yeah, one. No, it, yeah, Lynn, Lynn, Lynn's done incredible things, mm -hmm. and. um yeah, you know, I hope I hope we keep on. You know, you know, I hope he continues to 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 do these things because I mean I know that you know he's this is not the first thing he's done that's been um, you know highly acclaimed. I know you know in the Heights was something that people thought was was fantastic, and I hope he's he keeps going because like I said, it is a great source of pride for Wesley, and as it should be. Yeah, Jed. Look, we could talk to you all day, but uh, just like those perfect afternoons at Wrigley Field, <laughs> all great things must come to an end. So. <laughs> hey, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank yeah, you thanks, so Jed, much. For Real, us. Yeah. Really appreciate that you joined us, and all the best this season. All right, take care, guys. You yeah. too. Bye. Okay, Doug. Before we move on to the trivia portion of the show, here's a word from our friends at Indochino. Okay, Doug, it's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast. It's listener trivia. It's our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And once again this week, we are literally involving you. 
Remember those innocent, carefree days when we would just read your trivia questions from afar? We'd bungle your name, and then we get the question wrong. Those <laughs> days are over. <laughs> now, if we select the question, you get to ask us your own trivia question. You get to correctly pronounce your own name, and only then do we get it wrong. Um, we've been doing it this way for six weeks now. So far, it's been fun for you guys. Not quite so much fun for us. Um, like I think if I'm scoring this correctly, it's now listeners five, you and me is still zero. Right? <laughs> right. We haven't scored. You won't accept <laughs> right, my but, partial credit either. So no, I, we're not doing that. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, this week we may need to we may need to apply an asterisk. I'll tell you why in a moment. But first, let's welcome in this week's lucky guest trivia contestant. It's Bobby Cantwell. Bobby, welcome to Starkville. Uh, tell us where you're from and how you came to ask us this question. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I uh, happened to see this question yesterday, uh, right after you guys posted uh, for this contest <laughs> and whatnot. Yeah. And I thought it would be uh, pretty good since uh, Doug Glanville actually has some history with uh, part of this here. So, uh, well, he All was right. a Cub. We know that. Uh, he was, yeah, he was it, a Cub, and I actually had a chance to uh, watch him play down in Double uh, A here in Orlando. When he played for the uh, Orlando Cubs, yeah, so absolutely, uh, very, yeah, very cool, good days, good days, very yeah. hot, very hot. Oh no, they, <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's still hot now. <laughs> did you go to Did you go to any of the Michael Jordan games? Did you go? I did. I, I went to uh, an entire home series. The one, uh, one of them. So I was there, part of that craziness, and uh, it was a great time there. <laughs> you didn't go to any of our brawls because we had a lot of brawls when when you, <laughs> we, we were. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I did. <laughs> all, all the years going there, so. Uh, it was some great times down there watching you guys and uh, Ozzy Timmons, who I believe was your roommate. Yeah, you got it. And all that. So the World Cup, yeah. the World Cup was there. Soccer. Yep. That was yeah. That was oh great. yeah. That was a great summer. Yeah, that was good Glanville trivia right there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, I always like to ask uh, what our distinguished trivia contestants should be doing right now instead of blowing up their day to ask us a question. Uh, Bobby, it looks from your Twitter bio like you're kind of one of us, right? Do you work in the media? I do. Uh, I am a t uh, television logger for a sports network here down in uh, Orlando. And then I also work for a uh, large sporting event here. So, uh -huh. so sh shouldn't you, shouldn't you be doing some important uh, media work <laughs> right now? Instead <laughs> of, you should be, well, I'll like, yeah, I'll never be, tell, but, you know, <laughs> exactly. Hey, you don't tell, I won't tell. All right. <laughs> Doug, you're not going to tell. Right? No, not at all. Can, it, secret. can people hear this? Nobody testing? will know. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right. Well, this week we've got a fun little twist to our question because we picked a question from Bobby that I happen to know the answer to. Uh, and I know because it was an event that I covered. Oh, yeah. So you know what that, you know what that means, guys? It yeah. means Doug is in charge of answering this question by himself. And what? Bobby... Bobby, maybe you and I can heckle Doug while he's trying to answer the question. I'd personally enjoy that. What do you think, Bobby? That sounds good to me. Well, I'll, I'll accept that as long as we get credit for knowing it since you knew the answer. So <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take the money. I, 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 I don't know if we're going to do that. I think it's just going to be on you. Are you <laughs> Doug, you okay with that? You know I'll that, roll right? with it. <laughs> All right. We're going we're gonna to hand this over now. To Bobby Cantwell. Bobby, what is today's question? All right. So 32 years ago, on August 9th, 1988, the first night game was held at Wrigley Field between the Mets and the Cubs. 
However, that was not the game originally scheduled. The night before, there was a game, but it did not go five innings, so it was not official. Which team participated in that game? All right, you can't say the Cubs. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, okay, I mentioned this. I was there for both games. The the the, the game that got rained out after yeah, going a few yeah. innings, and the uh, game that counted. So, Doug, this is on you. Do you have any recollection of this? You were probably in mm, college or about to like leave for college or something. Yeah, I was about to get. Yeah, about to go to college. Uh, I, you know, I. It's funny. I know bits and pieces of this. All right. So, of course, the eight eight eighty eight. Remember that. Yes. I also remember Rick Sutcliffe pitched, I think, in the rainout, right? Didn't he pitch in, in the rainout? I and think he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so, he did, actually. So I, I have, remember talking to him afterwards. But who and he gave up he gave up a home run. He did. And I have no idea who it was. That because I would tell him <laughs> too. I can't that? tell. I cannot tell. 88. I cannot tell. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, I, the only thing I allow myself to do is I look at – I always look at the standings because I always forget the teams in the daggone league. Um, who hit look, that? Look, it, this is not that hard, right? Okay. There's a, there's a, they weren't playing interleague play then. They hadn't yeah. expanded yet then. Right. Uh, it was only the National League. Yeah. You know it's not the Mets because right. they played in the other game. So – just yeah. pick a team. There's still a lot of teams. Well, this, I, <laughs> I'm heckling. Can you hear? Yes, pick a team. All right. So who? Yeah, I don't know who it's on. So I'm I'm gonna say. Uh, well, I'm assuming yeah the the team they were playing the National League East for some reason because the Mets maybe they played the East before that. <laughs> so let's say the Phillies. <laughs> okay, that's your final answer, right? Took a while to get there. All right, Bobby. I know the answer. But I'm going to let you tell Doug whether he's right or wrong. Was it? Wait, is are you going to name the Expos or the Phillies? I don't know. It seemed like the Expos just popped into my mind. Why does that sound familiar? Uh, Larry Walker. Larry Walker wasn't on the team clearly in '88. Could you answer the question? (sighs) All right, I'm going to say Montreal Expos. (laughs) All right, Doug, you have to tell. uh, I'm sorry, Bobby, you have to tell Doug whether it was, in fact, the Montreal Expos. Doug, it was not the Montreal Expos. And so it you, was? It was. You should have stayed with your gut instinct <laughs> and gone with the foot off the Phillies. <laughs> yeah, the Phillies were there on eight eight eighty eight. Oh, my uh, God. I had it. You were so close. So close. You talked yourself out of it. Oh, my God. That was brutal. Um, and who, I would have gotten that right. Home run. Who hit the home run? Phil Bradley was the answer. Phil Bradley. Phil Bradley hit the first home run that, at, 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 in a night game at Wrigley Field that didn't count. Uh, and anyway, we'll we'll reminisce about this in a moment. But yeah. uh, usually, what we do after we give our feeble answers is we bring in the evil mayor of Starkville to play some cool play-by-play soundbite that's related to the answer. But this week. We have another shocking twist. Our mayor has gone on the lamb, so we had to bring back our mayor emeritus, Mayor <laughs> Cam, to take charge. And I, I don't know. I can't comment on the current whereabouts of the uh, current mayor, Mayor Tim. I can't comment on whether he's been impeached for bailing on us. But Cam, welcome back, man. Great to have you back in Starkville. Uh, do you have some entertaining 1988 Cubs play-by-play? I do. And actually, I'm going to let you listen to it because this is some fantastic audio. Here you guys go. All right. Lenny strikes out less than 10% and drives it to right. Dawson going back on the track at the Ivy. Gone. Home 
caught by a spectator. The spectator, instead of treasuring the first home run in Wrigley Field history at night, threw it back on the field. <laughs> that was the great Vin Scully yeah. describing Lenny Dykstra's home run. Wow, he had a home run. Nice. That's right. He did. Man. The first official home run. Wow. Hit in a night game at Wrigley Field was hit by that Lenny Dexter, who also later had a beer thrown on him. <laughs> but anyway, this is good work by Bobby. How'd you enjoy that, Bobby? That was cool. Oh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah, well, that, you asked a fun question, and you spared me from getting it wrong, so thank you for that. Uh, th thanks for taking time out of your day to trivialize us. Uh, we enjoyed that. Yeah, man. Thanks, Bobby. I appreciate it. Good memories, man. Appreciate thank it. You. Keep yes, Orlando, sir. No. Keep uh, Orlando going. <laughs> yes, sir. I appreciate uh, you guys having me on. All right. It was great, Bobby. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. All right. Uh, all right. Thanks to Bobby for adding to our trivia losing streak, although I used the word R loosely this week since I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, you had nothing. That's why we no. should get credit. We should get credit for that, even though like, yeah. I have the answer. But like I said, I have my blind spot in anything that happened in my own history. I had two teams that I played for play against each other. Yeah, uh, right. And, um, and you got that wrong. Yeah, I just, that. In fact, that's why he asked the question. He told me that. But, yeah, I figured that that uh, might have been the trick. Yeah. All right. Well, next, next, all right, next week, someone else will get this chance to ask us a question and enjoy every moment as we get yet another one wrong. We'll tell you how to do that a little later in the pod. But first, one thing we try to do in this segment is use the trivia question to inspire a topic for the show. And the reason we picked this particular question this week is it brought back some fun memories of an event that's kind of hard to comprehend right now uh, because not much more than 30 years ago, Doug, there was a major league ballpark and it had no lights. Okay. <laughs> but then finally, uh, the Cubs charged into the 20th century about nine decades too late. Uh, but I was there for both the rainout and the official first game. So I thought that I would tell you about it. Then we'll debate which of those should really be considered the first night game at Wrigley. Now, the first night, as you mentioned, 8-8-88, the game against the Phillies. What a scene. Uh, we had Morgana, the kissing bandit, prance mm -hmm. out of the stands, uh, tried to plant a kiss on Ryan Sandberg. I don't think she... Uh, she got there. I think there were some issues <laughs> before she got to Ryan Sandberg. Uh, Bill Murray was there, of course. Uh, uh, it started raining. We had this amazing lightning show. And Bill Murray said that was God's way of telling people we're all going to be electrocuted for going to a night game at Wrigley Field. <laughs> okay. We had uh, 537 Media members in attendance, Doug, 537. Wow. Uh, do you know it was the most covered regular season game in baseball history? That is true. Uh, I spent some time roaming around outside Wrigley for the game, and you can only imagine that scene. I, I ran into a couple at one point where, um, okay, the woman was wearing a black formal evening gown, and the guy she was with wore a black tuxedo and i said what's up with this and he said hey it's nighttime baseball we came in evening wear okay. so it was an incredible spectacle uh, unfortunately as we've mentioned the game got rained out after three and a half innings so the next night the phillies are gone the mets are in town they play all nine innings but it was a funny thing doug there was no morgana 
There was no Bill Murray. There was just a few of us straggler reporters left. The other 500 all went home. Uh, I talked to the Cubs front office. They told me they considered that Phillies game to be the first real night game. So the next night, whereas uh, for the Phillies game, it said, welcome to opening night out there in the marquee. The next night, it just said, welcome to Wrigley Field. Uh, I Even just today, I looked in the Cubs media guide, and it lists August 8th. 1988 as the first night game at Wrigley Field. Then it mentions that the August 9th game was the first official night, quote, contest. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to ask you, Doug Glanville, which of these two events should be considered the first night game at Wrigley Field? Wow. Well, I think because of history, you, you almost have to you always have to let go of the official status and just say, you know, they played night baseball at Wrigley on eight, eight, 88. You know I mean? I, I'm okay with that. Especially it's two teams that I know Phillies and Cubs. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know it's unofficial, but it did happen, right? It did happen. And that's something historic. Yeah, well, that's 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 one correct answer you've gotten on this topic. <laughs> you know, you look, you know my philosophy about these things. Uh, you just said it. When something happens, you can't make it unhappen. Okay, it's why I'm anti asterisk. It's why I'm also going to rule that the first night game at Wrigley was the one that didn't count. People paid a thousand bucks of tickets to see that game. Morgana attended that game. That's good enough for me, Doug. Uh, <laughs> right, exactly. right? No lightning storm can wash away what <laughs> I saw with my very own eyes. So I'm going to rule. Uh, this is a discussion of what constitutes an official event, not an official game. Therefore, it's 8888. That is the correct answer. We agree on that, don't we? We do. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Uh, all right. Finally, Doug, every week before we go, we normally laugh about our favorite strange but true moment of the week. But this week, since we both want to talk about the same moment, we're going to do yet another debate. Uh, and we're going to debate the bizarre play from Sunday's Angels-Rangers game. And uh, we're going to bring back our Mayor Emeritus to let us all hear this play for ourselves. 1-1. One, one. And this in the air out to right field. Adele was in, angling back. He gets there. Wow! And he just put it right over the fence. <laughs> like a setter in volleyball. He just pushed it right over. Oh, what a great call. Wow. Yeah, that was Nick Solak of the Rangers. He slices a fly ball to right. Uh, one of the great prospects in the game, Joe Adele. Gets a little tangled up tracking it. It hits him in the glove. It bounces over the fence. Uh, it was like a volleyball setter. Or I was thinking more like a fullback in soccer who kicks one into his own goal. <laughs> but whatever. Uh, our question today, Doug, is what just happened? <laughs> okay. um, the official score ruled it a home run. And he had a conversation with the Elias Sports Bureau. Apparently, Elias told him, no, that that's an error. And so, um, look, I have the rule. I, then I have the Elias statement. I have them in front of me. But you played the outfield for 13 years in the big leagues. I know you were all worked up about this play because you texted me something like 20 times <laughs> over the next three hours. So uh, let me start with this. Have you ever done that? 
Well, first, thank you. Thank you for giving me a few extra years of service time. When I get my pension, I will <laughs> absolutely cash that in. Oh, it wasn't 13 years. It wasn't quite 13, but nine, you know, nine. Yeah, nine, something you know, like that. Somewhere there, but that's all good. <laughs> I mean, uh, like as an outfielder, I you tend to want to record, you know, share with the world how tough your position is. You know, and I know Adele said something about he, he kind of lost it a little bit in the, the roof or whatever it was. But um, I was very excited about this play because I thought it should be a four base error. Um, you did. I did. And uh, I yes, your, your, what was it? Your uh, text messaging blew up because I was texting you. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. And, and so to me, it's, he was literally halfway in the warning track. It wasn't like he jumped at the wall. Like he, he had to practically kick it like as a field goal to get it over the fence. Like that's how far <laughs> he was to the fence. It was, it was, it was, it was like unbelievable. So, so yeah. And I, and I was curious, like, has anybody ever gotten a four base error? You know, can Seiko ball hits on top of his head, you know, and I guess that just never had been ruled in that way. So I was glad that the score really rethought it and said, let me just look at this and made history. So I thought that was the right call. I, I would I would think you'd be feeling the pain of one of your fellow outfielders. Doesn't seem like you are. I am. There's no pain here. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> I didn't, losing the ball, you know, whatever. But I, it, I, I didn't. Fortunately, I didn't have a whole lot of plays where the ball hit the glove and I dropped it. I think it happened on a rainout. I remember in Colorado, and I had a nice streak going by the end of my career. And I know it's hard, but he was. It was just very catchable. This wasn't like a jump you know, glorious baller, you know, ballet play. Like this was just, I'm standing under the ball, I'm drifting. And I just, it hit the middle of my glove, literally. And uh, I knocked it 35 feet over the fence. So, yeah. uh-huh. I mean, the cardboard cutouts were, were actually upset. They, they, they realized <laughs> that that was my call. They were a little wooden, I thought. <laughs> um, uh, all right, I'm going to read the rule to you. Um, it's rule five point. 05A9. I love that kind of talk. Okay. And it says, and I quote, any fair fly ball is mm-hmm. deflected by the fielder into the stands yep. or over the fence yep. in fair territory. Here yep. it comes. The batter shall be entitled to a home run. Wow. Say four bases. It says home run. Now, I'll tell you what Elias said. Uh, there's actually a st- an Elias statement that you can read, but it says Ooh. if basically if the play could have been made with ordinary effort, then it's an error. Um, and look, I know that looks bad, but we've seen many balls kind of like that over the years. I, the ones that I've seen have all been home runs in my recollection. So here's one memorable instance of this that comes to mind. High fly ball, right field deep. Canseco back to the track. Look it up. It is off his head, it looked like. And over the top. A home run. And Canseco goes back to the wall. He looks like he's, you know, he's checking the wall. He's checking the ball. Checking the wall and the ball. Reaches up. It's him right there. He goes over the top. (laughs) It hit Canseco in the head and bounced over the wall for a homer. Look at this. All right, so Doug, 
if that's a home run, my question <laughs> is, how, how is Joe Adele's ball an error? He didn't have the wisdom to get hit on the head instead of in the glove. Uh, I even, I even uh, texted a, a former umpire today and said, is that a home run or a four-base error? And he said, it's the exact same as the Canseco play. This is the key quote. Body part really makes no difference. <laughs> All right, so answer that, pal. Yeah, I mean, well, look, we I think we have to roll with the fact that we're in unprecedented times here. <laughs> unprecedented. So, you know, really? you gotta just be like, like that's a catchable it's, play. It's an error. Like, um, and like I don't you know, you maybe can you make it a home run and an error? I, I something weird. Uh, I no right. So you have to explain how this guy got all the way around the bases. So yeah, it's a weird line score, right? He has he scores a run on an error with one swing of the bat and knocks himself in, but he's an error. You know, I don't know. It's weird. So yeah, but I, I mean, I, I'm saying you're a major league player. You're underneath the ball and you literally just drop it. And it just so, so it happened to go over the fence. If you were a shortstop and a pop-up in short center field, there was no question that would have been an error. So why, why the hall pass? Because you happen to be standing near a wall or happen to be on some, you know, like I just, I feel like that's inconsistent. I think they feel bad about the ball going out of play and the guy who hit it. I'm sure as a hitter, yeah, I'd love the home run, but I just think you're, I, I, I think that's why I think they thought about it. It was a, who cares where you happen to be on the field? That should not change the fact that in, in any scenario, that's an error. All right. But let me ask you this now. Have you ever played in the outfield um, and then you just couldn't see the ball? I can remember like day games in, in, Stade Olympique in Montreal, where it was so hard oh, to yeah. see during the day. And it sounds like in right field in the new park in Texas, it is really hard to see during the day. Even Nick Solak said that afterwards. Uh, shouldn't that be a factor? Yeah. I mean, this is this is a good discussion on this because I, I think it should. I know I've lost balls in the sun. And we we're always grappling with errors as a general part of our game, right? Because all right, let's say you're Joe Adele, you lose the ball in right field, and then you just run out of the way. You just like sprint the other way because you think it's going to hit you. And it <laughs> yeah, bounces, that guy that. Gets a, right, the guy gets a double, right? Uh, so you could play yourself out of an error by just removing yourself from the situation. And and it's too much to to be in a score, to, uh, to be an official score to judge whether if you actually made a full attempt at it, that it, it would have been an error. So you have to just say, well, that's a double. And because the guy just like ran out of the way. So I, so there was a problem like Hunter Pence, right? We, you know, whatever he, he blew the right. Cueto, right? Because he just lost the ball. That's not an error. Um, so that's something to yeah. debate. So yes, he's punished for going after the ball, you know, it's for, from a personal stat. Standpoint. Yeah. He just stabbed at it. That's what he said. He was just taking a stab at it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he stabbed. I, all right. I get it. I get it. But you know, look, the only time I've ever, and I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast that the only time I ever engaged the score, there was actually two times. One was, um, yeah, it was Jimmy Rollins. We were in Shea Stadium. There was a pop up over Jimmy's head. He was running out to center. Burl was coming in from left. And I caught it, and Jimmy ran into me, and I knocked his glasses off. It was a pretty hard collision, but I dropped the ball as soon as he hit me. And I had this, whatever, huge errorless streak at the time, I think. I think that was around then. And uh, so the scorer came to the locker room after and asked me, 
if I had control of the ball and then Jimmy knocked it out or I was dropping it before Jimmy ran into me. And I said, well, no, I had control of the ball. And then he gave the error to Jimmy. He gave it to the shortstop. And I was really interested. I huh. mean, I, I knew that ruling is possible, but I never had engaged the score to ask that question. Of course, I would have said, yeah, of course I had it. And then Jimmy knocked <laughs> it Right, so... Uh, yeah, you weren't a good source there. Yeah, but I think I... And I want to say that... I don't know if it's the same game, but the only other time I saw the score is I hit a, a, a kind of a rocket line drive one hopper right at the pitcher and he hit his glove and he dropped it. And then I ran and made it and they gave me an error. It was E1. And I was like, how is he supposed to catch that ball? Like, it was like, I hit it back a hundred miles an hour. So uh, that was the only other time <laughs> that I've met the score. So yeah, I, I think that it's, it's open discussion. I think it's good that they try to, they try to be neutral and not engage players. And maybe you can get information like from Joe saying, Hey, I couldn't see it. But you know, when it hits your glove, there's there, the sympathy goes out the window, and maybe that's something to reconsider. Uh, who's to say what is ordinary effort? All I know is the rule clearly says it's a home run. Yeah. Jose Canseco clearly thinks it's a home run. That is good enough for me, Doug. That is not an error. That is a home run. Should have been a home run. Uh, all right, that's going to do it for this week's Starkville. Let's remind you again, Starkville is now available in its entirety absolutely free wherever you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us at the Athletic app and the Athletic website. Don't forget, if you'd like to read the stuff we write for a living or the fabulous writing of our sensational staff, there's still no better sports writing being done anywhere than you'll find in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, check us out. You won't regret it. One more thing to remember, you too can be part of this podcast, just like Bobby Cantwell today. We're now inviting the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here in the podcast and prove once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question that Doug Glanville can't get wrong. <laughs> All right, to do that, you just need to submit your question. Uh, you can email it to us at starkvilleattheathletic.com, or you can do what Bobby did and most people do, hit us up on Twitter. How would you find Doug Glanville, for instance? Well, I'm very easy to find here. It's just my name, at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And you would find me at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T, Jason with a Y-S-T. Please remember to hashtag your questions with the hashtag StarkvilleQS. Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Jed Hoyer for visiting us. Thanks to Bobby Cantwell for the trivia question. Thanks to our Mayor Emeritus, Cam Molina, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Uh, as always in a season like this, uh, we're not exactly sure what's going to happen to the baseball season in the next week. But one thing we do know for sure, we will see you next week on Starkville.